Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I want to just start with a, a favorite story of mine. Um, it's from the, the Sanzer Rebbe. So the, the Sanzer Rebbe was a Hasidic master uh, from the 1800s, and he was really made many miracles and was just really an, an, exalted, uh, an exalted Rebbe. And um, actually, his descendants now uh, sort of became the, the, the Bavavar dynasty. So... So if you if you've heard about Bavav, that that all comes from Sons, but anyway, so so it goes like this: there was a back back at that time. Unfortunately, tuberculosis was was kind of a, a scourge, and you know it, it, people would cough blood and things like that. It was you know oftentimes fatal, and so there was there was a person who who had an older father, and and he he had a case of this, and you know was coughing up blood, and and he. The son didn't know what to do, so he took him for a blessing uh, by the Sanzer Rebbe, and the Sanzer Rebbe looked at, at him and he said, "What you should do is give him strong black coffee." And he said, St- "The son says strong black coffee that, that that would be horrible for him right now." He goes, so, "Are you sure?" He goes, yeah, "Strong black coffee." So he he doesn't know, but he trusts in the Rebbe. He gives him strong black coffee. His father and his father is healed. So sometime later, days, weeks, months, whatever it is, the son is, is with the father, and the father has a relapse, and it's, it's, it's worse. It's much worse than the first time. And he's so sick that he, he, he's not even well enough to take him to the Sansa Rebbe. But he doesn't know what to do, so he figures, I just have to risk it. So he, he, he brings him to the Sansa... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Because he can't bring him to the Sansa Rebbe, he says, well, what... The last time the Sansa Rebbe told me, told me to give him strong black coffee. So I'll give him strong black coffee. And it makes it even worse. So now he's really at a place of desperation and he figures, you know, I'm just going to risk it. And he takes him to the Sansa Rebbe. And the Sansa Rebbe looks at him and he says, what did you do? And he says, I gave him strong black coffee. He says, you gave him strong black coffee? He goes, that's the worst thing you can do. So he says, so what should I do? He says, give him strong black coffee. So he gives him strong black coffee and he's better. <laughs> so that, that's the end of the story. <laughs> so the question is, what, 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 what cured him? Was it the strong black coffee or was it the blessing from the red? Right? So, so obviously that was just a conduit, however we're to understand it. For, for the blessing. And from this you see just something that's, a, you know, essential. If someone wants to advance in this spiritual path of Torah, a person has to understand that, that there are really exalted souls among us, you know, and, and that they have a, they have a view, they have a, a wider view of the world than, than, than we have, a deeper, a deeper view. Um, and, you know, you can almost liken it to if you're, like I heard Rabbi Green say one time, if you imagine you're stuck in traffic and then you, you listen to the traffic report and who, who's telling you, like, which way to go? There's a helicopter flying, like, above who has an overview of what's going on down below. And, and sometimes, um, you know, today we have Waze and a GPS, which is already a satellite, which is even higher, Right. And, and sometimes they'll tell you, I don't know if you've had this experience with, with your GPS, 
I have where it actually tells you to go in the opposite direction, right? Which is so counterintuitive. Like, do the opposite direction? But that's to get you to a faster place. So a lot of times when in our lives, when we're, so to speak, stuck in traffic, right? And we think that, well, wait a second, what, is, what does Judaism say? Well, the Torah says that the, the mitzvah is to do this, like, keep Shabbos. And you're telling me, I'm, I'm like having trouble financially. You're telling me, don't work on Saturday? I'm going to lose an essential payday. Like, you're, you're, you are sending me into a brick wall. Like, why? But then you get a little bit closer, and then you realize, oh, wait, there was a road right next to that. I didn't see it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you realize that the highways and the byways, right? The, the strong black coffee, if you will, right? It's like there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an X factor to it. And I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, like, some, just, I think like a really core idea, and it's phrased so simply, which is that the world does not work in a one plus one equals two way. You know, and anyone who's been alive for more than a few minutes eventually figures that out. You know, it's just the reality of the world. There's, there's, there's a, another, there's an X factor that's just built into creation. You know, I've said, I've said before, you know, it's a very cool idea. This, I learned this from Rabbi Wolfson, uh, who said in the name of the Chassam Sofer, that wherever you see, you have large letters, not too often, but... But everywhere in Torah, there's a large version of every single letter of the Aleph base. And then you also have a small letter. This is over Tanakh um, of the Aleph base, right? In, in every instance, right? You've got a letter, a large version and a small version. And they're all in very interesting, very important areas. And you can learn lessons by, by that. But um, what the Chassam Sofer says is that when you have a large letter, that it's four times the gematria of the normal number. So that's just, that's not a very well-known thing. That's just, and it's coming from one of our greatest sources, the Chassam Sofer. Um, so, so the first letter of the Torah, and remember, the Torah is a blueprint. The Zohar says that the, the Torah is a blueprint of reality. So the first letter of the Torah is welcoming you. That's your, that's your entree point into into the reality of this world. So it's very meaningful that the very first letter of the Torah is a large letter. It's one of these large letters that we were just talking about. It's the large letter Bayes. So Bayes, normally speaking, is the number two, right? Because you've got Aleph. Aleph is one. Bayes is two. So normally, Bayes is the number two, which in itself is incredibly significant because Bayes is already signaling to you that you're entering into a realm where... There's a lot of duality, right? There's heaven and earth. There's good and evil. There's body and soul. There's male and female. There's the written Torah and the oral law, right? There's the hidden and the revealed. There's all sorts of twos. That's like the, the, the kind of the first thing you got to know when you, when you enter into this world. There's a lot of duality. But that's, that, that, that we've covered before. What is this idea of the large letter base? Because if we're saying that the large letter base, a large letter is four times the, the number of the normal gematria, then four times two is eight. Now that's very interesting because that means that this whole realm, 
this whole dimension that we live in, the hallmark of it, the, the entree way, is the number eight. Now, the number eight is, is above seven. Remember, you have seven days of the week. In, in, in Torah um, Hashkafa ideology, the number seven stands for this world, right? So, you know, I, I, I just heard recently, you know, the, the, there's lots of sevens all over the place, and they define sort of like the normal order of this world. Uh, musically speaking, there's seven notes to the scale. So it's do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, right? And then if you've got the eighth note, they say that when the world becomes rectified, when it, when it, becomes, when it evolves into its intended state of being, that another note is going to be added to the musical scale that's going to go up an entire uh, octave, yeah. So that's, in other words, it's, that will be parallel to this new reality, this new octave of uh, some very, very interesting. But anyway, the point is, is that you see that the number eight, which is Lamala Minatava, above nature, is already showing up from the very outset of creation. Because a large base, base is normally the number two, but it's a large base, so times four, because every large letter is four times the gematria, equals eight. The very entree point into reality is the signal that the world does not work in a one plus two equals, one plus one equals two way. In other words, the Torah is so deep, it's so awesome. Here you have this two thoughts going on at the same time at the very beginning of the Torah. The number two Good and bad, right? It sounds very, very like um, meat and potatoes, right? This is kind of what it is. But then all of a sudden you have built into this very sort of rationalistic, nature-based construct, you have this infinite thing going on simultaneously, which means that God is creating the rules of nature and reserving the right to veer from them at any moment <laughs> at the same time. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So, so we have this idea of the more, you know, you, you have something very interesting in the Holy Temple. Remember, what, what, what is the Holy Temple? Because, why are we so fixated on it, especially this time of year? Why, why is it so important to us? Because the Holy Temple is the connection between heaven and earth. So, so right now there's a, a real brokenness to the world because really heaven and earth should be together. That's what we want. That's what the world is evolving toward anyway. That is the destiny of the world, for heaven and earth to be together. But right now there's a separation between the two. And why are they broken off? Why, why is there that, that separation? And the answer is, is because we don't have that connecting point. We don't have that Beis HaMikdash, that holy temple, that conduit which harmonizes everything. Like, what was the whole idea of all the offerings? So that when there's a disturbance below, because we kind of didn't act in the right way, so we sort of kind of threw things out of whack, right? Through our own deeds, there was a way to kind of 
harmonize those energies with these offerings and, and to keep everything balanced between heaven and earth. So, so we're, we're, we're lacking that right now. And, that's, and not only are we lacking that, but we're lacking the realization that we're lacking it. That, that's, that's, that's what's so sad. Like the Kutzka Rebbe says, you know, what do you say to someone? Someone came to him and said that I can't cry over Tisha B'Av because I can't relate to the events of the past that we're, that we're commemorating. And then he said, well, you know what you should do? You should cry that you aren't crying. Like, like that in itself is a tragedy that you don't have the, the appreciation to know what it is that we're missing. I heard in the name of the Nativa Shalom something very important, I thought, which is, without going through the whole thing, just to cut to the chase here, he talks about these three weeks in a different way, that these three weeks are that we're in right now, leading, you know, culminating in Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which of course marks the, dis, you know, it's the darkest day of the, the Jewish calendar, so many tragedies, but primarily the destruction of the first and second temples, both on this day. And what he, what he clarifies, a very important point, is that really all of this stuff that we're doing right now in terms of trying to fix ourselves and to be conscious of what we're missing and everything like that, all that is designed to bring down the third base of Mikdash, the third holy temple. In other words, what we're doing right now is we're, we're, it's very forward-looking. That, that's the point. It's, this is... This isn't about uh, this thing that happened in the past. It's also about that. But, but there's a practical element to what's going on right now, which is very future-based. And that's, that's important because a lot of people don't understand that Judaism, Torah, is a visionary ideology. And what I mean by that is, see, if you were to go up to um, most Jews... Right, and you were to ask them, "Why are you Jewish?" Right, I, I think that the answer the average person on the street would give you is, "I'm Jewish because you know my mother was Jewish, or because my grandparents were Jewish, and so to speak, when I was born, it was like tag you're it, and so now I'm Jewish. What can I do? You know, it's like that's just kind of the way it works, right? So that's I think what most people would answer, right? So, so Rabbi Freeman actually said something awesome. Well, he said many awesome things, but on this point, he said that if you went up to Avraham and Sarah, now Avraham and Sarah are the first two Jews, right? So we, we want to know Judaism like they knew Judaism since they were the first Jews, right? So if you ask them, why are you Jewish? They're not going to tell you because my parents or my grandparents were Jewish. Because their parents and their grandparents were not Jewish. They, they, and, and they themselves were not born Jewish, right? So, so, but, but more importantly, for, for our purposes right now, their parents and their grandparents were not Jewish. So if they're the first Jews, and they have the primary vision of Judaism, right? Since they're the founders. Obviously, Judaism is a forward-looking religion not a backwards-looking religion. That's the point. And you see that from the founders themselves. So what is that forward-looking view? The forward-looking view is that this whole thing is about finishing the world. 
This whole thing is about bringing into reality the vision that God had from this world from the very outset, which is a perfect world. So we're talking about no war, no hatred, right? No hunger, no obstacles to serving Him. Like where we're all kind of like, just there's a revelation of God's oneness. And, and that's what God had in mind from the very outset for creation. And that's what we're driving toward. And that's what this period of the year is about. Which is like saying, okay, well, what do we need to get there? Well, the first thing that we need is we need a holy temple because we need heaven and earth to be aligned. So if we're missing on that, that we got we to gotta get to that. So, so the rabbis teach that the reason why we're in this exile right now um, is because we're hating each other for no reason. And, and, and that's, that's really big. So, so they say the, the answer is loving each other for no reason. Right? That's, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's an awesome thing. Um, but I want to get back to this idea of really these, the highways and the byways, because because when you connect, when you connect on a higher level, see, we're, we're talking about the Holy Temple now. What was the essence of the Holy Temple? The essence was the Holy of Holies. That's where, that's where the luchos, that's where the tablets that Moshe got on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments on them, right? That's where those were kept. And the Ramban says famously that basically what the Holy Temple was, was an ongoing Mount Sinai experience. In other words, the, the idea is that God didn't just talk to the Jewish people and talking about two and a half, three million people who were present who all heard the voice of God. Remember, that's, that's unprecedented in any world religion. No other world religion would have the chutzpah, would have the, the audacity to claim such a thing because it's so easily disproven. So in every major religion, you have one enlightened person who says, trust me, right? But we see that God has no problem talking to two and a half, three million people if he wants to get his point across, right? So that's, pretty, that's kind of pretty hard to argue with. And the Torah itself, as it was revealed at Mount Sinai, um, no disrespect to any other religion, but let's just know what Judaism says, says that you can't change the mitzvahs that God is giving you at Mount Sinai. That was God's idea. So if another religion traces itself back to Mount Sinai, it already invalidates itself. Because the Mount Sinai experience says you can't change the Torah. That's God's idea. That comes from God. So, anyway. We're all God's children. (laughs) We'll work it out. We'll work it out. But let's just say if you're betting on Judaism, we're on the same page. I mean, okay. So, if if you have... The Holy of Holies. 
And that's the, that's the essence of this connection point between heaven and earth, right? Which is holding the tablets with the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah on it, right? There's something very interesting about it because the measurements of the Ark as they were in the, ten, as they were in the Holy of Holies, it took up no space. See, there's a, there's a, like this very wild sort of quantum physics thing going on with the Holy of Holies, which is if you look in, in the Torah, they give you very specific measurements of how big the Ark is. But if you actually look in the Tanakh, it took up no space. There's a whole set of measurements in the Tanakh which shows that once you entered into the Holy of Holies, you just sort of like jumped quantum realms. So I asked a rabbi about this. I said, what, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he said, he said that what it means is, is that as a person gets closer to the Holy of Holies, right, in terms of their own avoda, their own closeness to God, the more they go beyond time and space. So we've seen Sadiqim, we've seen very holy people who, they know things. How do, how do they know these things, right? Like, because they're getting close to the Holy of Holies through very serious, just spiritual refinement. And you do that, you do that through the mitzvahs of the Torah, right? So getting back to this whole idea, you're stuck in traffic, right? But there are certain individuals who can see the overview. So those are the tzaddikim. Those are the tzaddikim. And uh, and it says in the Torah that if they tell you to go, if they tell you left is right and right is left, this is this is a Rashi in Chumash. If the judges of the day, and the judges of the day are, are the tzaddikim, okay? But we're really talking about emistic tzaddikim, really the true tzaddikim. You have to be very careful. You have to be very careful who, you know, if, who, who is a tzaddik, right? I mean, this is, you, you just have to be very particular because what I'm talking about is emis right now, you know? And so you can't apply what I'm saying to the wrong people because then you get yourself into trouble. But I'm talking about really the, the highest, purest souls. So Rashi says in Chumash, in, in Chumash it says that you have to listen to the judges of the dead. And Rashi on that says if they tell you left is right and right is left, you believe them. So what, is, what does that mean? That means that if you're stuck in traffic and, and Waze is telling you to go right... <laughs> Or ways is actually telling you to go backwards. That you go right or you go backwards. Because there's a there's a there's a there's a level of there's a level of truth there that is clear to them and is true and is not not clear to you. And again you say, but wait a second, I want to make myself the final authority. Because all I have in the end is what's between my ears. 
And if I start short-circuiting that, then I don't know if I can function, quite frankly. Okay, so you go a step at a time. You go a step at a time. And you build a trust. You build a trust relationship. I saw um, something that made a big impression on me. It was, I guess I, the first time I saw this, I think it was George Mitchell, who I don't think is with us anymore, but he, he, was a, he was like a really good U.S. senator, and he was trying to broker peace deals around the world and things like that. And he, was, he, he used this phrase that I thought was very resonant. He was talking about in the Middle East between the, the Jews and the Palestinians, and he said that they, we have to embark on trust-building measures. And I really liked that because, you know, there is a profound lack of trust between the two parties. And if you can take small steps where you realize, oh, you know what? They kept their word on that. Oh, okay, well, from that I see that they're not incapable of keeping their word. And then you didn't put yourself in any existential danger by making that initial first step, right? And then they see that, 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 that the other side is also keeping their word. So after a while, there's enough trust-building steps that you then say, okay, well, now let's try something a little bit riskier. Now, now you have the fortitude to take a step like that because there's now a history and a track record of promises kept. So a person has to build that same type of relationship with God. Right? You have to, you have to be able to say, okay, well, if this, is the, if this is the essential reality, if this is what it is, then let me at least explore this relationship. Let me, let me, okay, so maybe I'm not keeping Shabbos 100%, but let me keep a little bit more of Shabbos. And we'll see, that's a, that's a trust-building measure. Let's see if my life falls apart if I do that. And then you see, oh, okay, well, my life didn't fall apart. That was kind of nice. Let me try another step. I, I mentioned it uh, over Shabbos, but it's such a strong visual that I have to say it again. It's from the Chofetz Chaim. And um, you know, a lot of people, they, they work on Shabbos because they, they, they need the money. And they feel like there's a paycheck, and I, I need that paycheck, and that's just kind of what it is. So I'm going to, I'll go and I'll get that extra paycheck. So, so the Torah says, it's in uh, Gemara Rosh Hashanah, um, that on Rosh Hashanah, on the, the first day of the, the Jewish New Year, every penny that you're going to make over the next year is decreed in heaven. Right? Every penny. So your income for the year is already fixed. It's already fixed. So he says, what, what can this be compared to? Imagine someone has like a barrel of wine, okay? And there's one spigot in the wine. And so they, you know, the, the, the wine is coming out of the spigot. But they say, I need more wine. I need it faster. Like a person says, I need more money. So I'm going to work on Shabbos. So what are they doing? They're putting a second spigot into the same barrel. <laughs> So it looks like it's coming out faster. But it's an illusion. Because you're drawing on the same wine. You're going to get the same wine either way. But it's coming out faster. So it, it, it positively reinforces your misimpression. 
Because you say, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean? I'm getting the cash? Look, here's the check. Here it is. Here it is for my showed up at the job. Here it is. Here's the check. What are you telling me I'm not making money? But you're drawing on the same barrel. Not only that, but a person won't benefit from that. Because they're drawing it out faster. Or they'll incur expenses in a surprising way where they end up just giving it back. And they won't even necessarily make the mental connection. Right? What? I was parked in the parking lot and then the guy like sideswiped me in the parking lot and he didn't leave a note or anything like that and I'm out. How much money? And that happens and the person will never make the connection. That there's a very, very precise kind of thing going on in terms of our finances. So, so all this has to do with our journeys. And that's why I'm bringing all this stuff up because we just, we, we just talked about our journeys in the desert. And of course, we just listed the 42 journeys that the Jews made from Egypt to Israel. And when you hear Egypt to Israel and those 40 and that number 42, you have to understand that we're talking about something very specific because remember the Torah is working on multiple levels simultaneously. It's talking about a real historical event. And by the way, the Rambam brings that in the future people will say, nah, they didn't really live in the desert. You can't live in the desert. Two, three million people can't live in the desert for 40 years. Come on. So that's why the Torah lists every single stop we made in the desert. A very rational, cool approach, actually. No, no, no. We actually, not only, can I show you the itinerary? <laughs> uh, you know, here it is. This is, this is it. So that's, that, that's, that, that's interesting. Now that's just on, what we say, pshat, that's just on the baseline level of why the 42 stops are, are, are listed. But let's go a little bit deeper. Whenever we're talking about the trip from Egypt to Israel, we're talking about the entire view of, of the history of creation. We're talking about exile to redemption. Exile, slavery is Egypt. Israel means redemption. Okay? And Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says beautifully, classically, that wherever a Jew walks, he's walking toward Israel, even if he's going in the opposite direction. Right? So we're going we're gonna to get there. We're going to get there. So the Baal Shem Tov says there's 42 stops in every individual's life as well. And I'd like to offer an explanation of that. I don't know if this is what he had in mind, but my heart tells me that when he says that each of us has 42 stops, that it's not just talking about geographical locations, that, that we're talking about relationships, that we're talking about jobs, that we're talking about life milestones, spiritual levels, up or down. And that's part of our 42 as well. Now I want to add something. We talked about it at length in last week's talk. Um, I, t- I, talk, I called it the, the art of Torah, DNA, and destiny. Right? 
we really got into the shapes of the letters and things like that. And so uh, I'll just kind of say it quickly. You know, the very first letter of the Torah, as we said, is the letter Bez. That's of the written Torah. The very last letter of the of the Torah in the in the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah, is the, the final letter Mem of the word Shalom, right? And we said Shalom, peace is 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 the great vessel which which holds blessings, right? There's no greater vessel to hold blessing than peace, right? And I, I gave an example, which is imagine someone has like this incredibly fantastic bottle of wine, like. Hundreds of dollars, this bottle of wine, like unbelievable. He's pouring you a full glass, and you have a hole on the bottom of your glass. <laughs> Can you imagine? And he's pouring, he's so generous. Ah, oh, this is the most awesome wine. You're gonna. Oh. He's pouring and pouring, and it's just all running at the bottom. Why? Because your vessel is broken, and you don't have the ability to maintain the blessings that are coming down every single moment from heaven. So. Shalom, peace, is the word shlemus. Shlemus means completion. That means that you have a level of tranquility. That means that you have what we call menuchas hanefesh. That means that you're you're at peace. Your 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 soul is is in a, in a restful state. Right? Doesn't mean you're lazy, by the way. Doesn't mean you're not active. You're 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 in it. You're driving. But at the same time, you. you you're trusting in God. And and the, the duties of the heart, one of the classic Jewish books from a few hundred years ago, right? It says that if you are a tranquil person, if you are a calm, peaceful person, right? Not, not pretend calm. I've met some really tightly wound people in my life who just seem so relaxed. It's like such a drag, you know? Like, anyway. It's it's it's. I'm talking about someone who's genuinely, genuinely in a tranquil place. That's a sign that you trust God. It's a sign that you trust God because you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be calm like that unless you trusted God. It's an it's an indicator that, that you actually have trust in God. Now I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine said in it from a from a medrash which was, um, again, another awesome visual. You know, back in the day, when people went from one place to another place, they'd, they'd get on a donkey, okay? So now imagine this. You're sitting on a donkey, you're going on a trip, and on each hand you're holding two heavy pieces of luggage while you're, don- while you're riding on your donkey. So the vendor said, that's kind of a foolish person. <laughs> If you're on your donkey, why don't you take... Because this is what donkeys are built for. Why don't you take your luggage and put that on the donkey as well? <laughs> right? That's kind of the point. Like, why are you stressing out holding, like, two heavy bags while you're sitting on your donkey? So, so, so to speak, the, the Medrash makes the point that if a person is going to live... You know, if you're, if you're going to be trying to serve God... But you're, you're serving God, right? You believe in God. But you know what? I'll take care of all my problems. <laughs> I'll hold all the bag. Well, wait a second. What am I doing? I'm serving God anyway. Why? Let me give my, my problems to God as well. Let me trust in God as well. Right? So it's, it's funny that that's not obvious to us. That's kind of funny. 
But, you know, this is just kind of the human condition. These are lessons that we have to learn. These are levels that we have to advance to, to know that, that we should do things like this, right? So getting back to the letter Bez, the first, the first letter of the Torah is, is, is the letter Bez. And the last letter of the Torah, which is the end of the Torah Shabal Peh, the, the oral law, is a final mem. So if you look at those two letters, the gematria of those two letters, from the beginning all the way to the end, well, Bez is two and mem is 40, that's 42, right? Those are the travels, those are the complete travels. And if you see the Torah as not just, you know, remember the Torah is divine. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. So it's also a timeline through history. So we have the beginning and the end. We have a, a roadmap of all the travels of creation. By the way, that relationship between the Bays and the Mem is deeper than that. But listen to last week's talk if you want to hear a whole amazing thing on that. Um, so that's, the, the, again, the art of Torah, DNA, and destiny. Um, but let's go into these travels because we're all on a journey, right? We all have our own. We've got, remember, every single person has two aspects to themselves, at least within this paradigm, that we're living simultaneously. One is our individual mission and one is our collective national mission. Remember, and as Reb Shlomo so beautifully said, our tradition is, is that at Mount Sinai, every Jew was there. And that includes every Jew that wasn't born yet, their soul was there, and every person who was going to convert to Judaism, their soul was there also. So everyone got the Torah at Mount Sinai. So if that's the case, that everyone got the Torah at Mount Sinai, why does an angel come while you're in your mother's belly and teach you the whole Torah? It's a great question, right? That's Rip Shlomo's question. Because if we already got the Torah at Mount Sinai, why do we have to get it again? So he says a fantastic answer. At Mount Sinai, we got our national mission. Inside your mother, you get your individual mission. Right? Because you have two, 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 two jobs, basically. You have special gifts. Every single person is blessed with special gifts. How they can uniquely bring the redemption. And then, of course, we do it as a nation as well. Okay. So all of us are on a journey. We're on the 42 from Egypt to Israel. And we're also on the 42, like the Baal Shem Tov says, that each we have in our own lives. Bless you. So that's... So it's all about this journey. Now, in describing the journey, there's a classic question which all the rabbis, all the rabbis are asking based on the way the Torah phrases them. Okay? Now I'm going to read you, uh, I'll tell you the Hebrew in a second, but I'm going to read you this English translation. This is at the beginning of uh, Parshas Masai. Um, it's uh, chapter 33, verse 1. And you'll see there's a lot of repetition in what I'm going to read you. I'm going to read you the first two verses, okay? 
A lot of repetition. Repetition. And then there's a key phrase in it, and I'll point it out afterwards, but you can listen for it, which gets inverted. It's said one way at the beginning, and then it's said the opposite way at the end. But you'll see this is going to be kind of like a windy path. You ready? These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went forth from the land of Egypt according to their legions under the hand of Moshe and Aaron. Moshe wrote their goings forth according to their journeys at the bidding of Hashem, and these were the journeys according to their goings forth. It's like, I don't know where you are, but I'm lost. <laughs> I'm like, where do we go? What was that? It's like, what? What just happened? So, so I'll just zero you in on the, 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 the key phrase. There's a lot here, by the way, but I'm just, we're going to isolate one thing where there's a phrase that's inverted. Now, they say goings forth. I'm going to use the word travels because I think that's a little simpler, okay? So when it talks about the, the uh, when, it, when, it, when it talks about um, the, the leaving, right? We'll, we'll say leaving and traveling, right? So it says, um, Motza Sehem is, is leaving like Yitzitz, right? Like Yitzitz Mitzrayim, that's the going out. And Lama uh, Sehem, those are the travels. And those words are inverted so that in the beginning, the Torah talks about our leavings, as in leaving Egypt, and our travels, travels through the desert. But then it talks about our travels through the desert and our leaving. Okay? So why is that inverted? Why is that turned inside out? Well, what can we learn from that? So I want to give you my explanation, and I've learned different things on this over the years, so I might be drawing on some Rebbe's right now that I'm not aware of. So, but, but here's how I understand it. And it kind of cuts to the core. It's actually not an esoteric thing. This is going to actually cut to the core of, of our daily lives. Okay? And just to preface this thought, I want to tell you something. I don't remember the exact numbers uh, that Rabbi Beryl Wine used, but, but he said something very, very important. He said that it's easier to go in terms of, like, let's say you're trying to really fix your soul. We're all trying to fix our souls. By the way, it's, it's worth just repeating. Judaism believes in reincarnation. You know, and as, as Reb Shlomo put it, this world is one big hospital clinic. Everybody is here to fix something. Right? So, so it's, it's really important. And, and the, the Torah mitzvahs are the way through which we, we fix our soul. So it's not like, you know, I remember when I grew up, I, I, I didn't grow up in an Orthodox home, so I didn't grow up with, you know, like real Torah study. You know, it was a beautiful upbringing. But, but the word mitzvah, when I was growing up, was translated as good deed, which is sweet, right? Like Rip Shlomo would say, it's sweet and it's cute. But it's, man, it is absolutely not doing justice to what the Torah is saying. It's actually a commandment. Right? And commandment is actually not the best word. It's a divine pathway. Right? You walk down this divine pathway and you make these are the connections between heaven and earth. 
which brings completion and rectification to our souls. A good deed, I'll tell you why I'm picking on this phrase, a good deed, because, because there's, there's a point. I'm not just being obnoxious, I hope. <laughs> a good deed says, you know what? This is above and beyond what you have to do. That, that's what it says to me anyway. Right? You're fine. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to do a good deed, here's a good deed. And that, man, does that, does that just gut our entire vision of the world. It just it guts our vision of the world. Because we say that this is the core reality of all of existence, all of history, the entire reason why the world was created, the entire reason why we, cre- we, were, we were created. This is the core, this is the core function right here. We're, at, we're inside the nuclear fusion chamber right now. That, that, that is really what's, this is, this is it. And if it's extra, if quote-unquote religion, you know there's no Hebrew word in the Torah for the word religion. We don't believe in religion. We believe in reality. <laughs> then you're saying there's no word for religion? Well, what's Judaism? It's true. It's reality. It's actually what's going on. Oh, I thought it was religion. Like, you know, you're fine, but, you know, you can always be nicer, I guess. There are always more places you can give money to, right? (laughs) So, so let's get back to this idea. We're, we're, We're trying to, we're trying to fix our souls. So Rabbi Wein says the following. It's easier to go from zero, and I don't remember the number he gave, but it was something like from zero to 80% than it is to go from 80% to 100. That's interesting. That is interesting. That is, that's a revelation there. And that's what I'd like to suggest is kind of behind this inversion of phrases um, that we just had. Remember, we, the Torah starts with the idea of leaving Egypt and then our travels. And then it talks about our travels and then leaving. So I want to suggest what it means is the following. You see... There comes a point, hopefully, in everyone's life where they go, you know something? There's more to life than I can see with my eyes. And also, as smart as human beings are, we're never going to know everything. So why should I limit myself to my own lack of understanding? Especially when I know that there's more than I'll ever know. And then that's God, and that God himself has communicated his will to me. My wife heard from one of her rabbis something that I, I always liked. It's a little facetious, it's a little playful, but there's something to it. So let's say a person keeps Torah, right? And let's say it turns out not to be true. It is true, but just for the purpose of this example. What did you do that was so terrible? You had a little more chicken soup than you would have normally have had? I mean, like, you shook a lulav in an estrog? 
Like really, honestly, what was so terrible? You spend more time with family? You spend more time reflecting on your life and trying to be a better person? What was so terrible? And what did you gain and potentially what do you have to gain if in fact it is true? All of eternity. So there's not that much to lose. And what there is to gain is, is off, off the charts. Off the charts. So a person at some point realizes these types of things, thinks about the world, thinks about the reality, thinks about the fact that they know from their own experience over and over again that the world does not work in a one plus one equals two way. That the world is deeper than that. And at a certain point, a person says, you know something? Am I better than my fathers and my mothers and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents? Am I better than them? So, so let me do it too. So that's the zero to 80%. That's the zero to 80%. A person kind of changes a lot of their practices, gets it together, gets it together, right? Okay, so that's the, that's the leaving Egypt, if you will, and the traveling. Ah, uh, but now we're getting from the 80 to the 100%. <laughs> and that's actually harder than the 0 to the 80%. And what this requires now is a person to be able to say, you know what? Good enough is not good enough. That's the travelings. That's the, remember, you have the leavings, you're leaving Egypt, and you're traveling. You're getting to that 80%. But now you've got to have, right? Now you've got it the other way around. You had your travelings, and now you've got to leave the place of your travel, right? You've got to go to a higher place. You've got to go to a higher place. And that's, that, that's, that's hard to do. That's, that's really hard to do. That's hard to do. And it's got to be deep internal work. That's the deep internal work, right? That's not the, okay, I'm going to throw on an extra fancy garment type work, right? Unless those garments are part of the basic observance. So... So the Katskarebi says that, um, so the Medrash says that someone who grows old is like an ape. Okay? <laughs> so obviously the Torah is not making fun of older people. There's actually a mitzvah that if an older person walks into the room, you have to stand. Right? So that's, that's a mitzvah. We have great, tremendous respect for older people. Because older people are repositories of experience. And from experience comes wisdom. So, so then what is the Torah saying if they're comparing an older person to an ape? Obviously they're saying something deeper. So the Kutzker Rebbe explains it. That the nature of an ape is to imitate. 
And in fact, even in English, this is so widely known. I mean, this is an, an ancient teaching. This is so widely known that even in the English language, if you look up the word ape, it means to imitate, as in to ape one's gestures, right? Because it was known that apes copy. Okay? So now listen to this. It's a devastating thought. Devastating. The Kutzka Rebbe says that a person, at a certain point in their life, and this is probably completely not conscious, not conscious, they don't think this out rationally, they just do it. At a certain point in a person's life, they go, you know what, I got it right. And then they spend the rest of their lives as an imitation of who they were. They go through life copying who they were. And that, according to the Torah, says the Katska Rebbe, is the definition of old age. It has nothing to do with numbers. A person can be old at the age of 11 and young at the age of 90 if they're not copying themselves. But you know what? In order not to copy yourself, you have to leave again from where you traveled to. You have to leave again. You have to go to a new destination. Otherwise, you're just an imitation of yourself. So how can we how can we understand this idea of traveling forth even more um, even better. So let's let's go back to, to to the model of our travels in the desert. And if you actually look, I think it's in um, um, in Boloscha, uh, the 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 account of the travelings in the desert. And and there's one long stretch of the Torah, like a big long paragraph, where it says that. You see, we knew when to travel. Remember, we were in the desert for 40 years. But, but what a lot of people don't know is that we weren't traveling for all 40 years. It wasn't like this fiddler on the roof, Anatevka type situation where we just had a, a sack over our shoulder and bent over just like walking around for 40 years. That, that was not what happened. We encamped in different places and sometimes the encampment the Orachayim brings was as short for 12 hours, by the way. But sometimes the encampment was, were as long as several years. Okay? So when did we know when to travel and when to stop? And the Torah says it very, very clearly. When there was a cloud cover, which was a sort of a manifestation of God's presence, there was a cloud cover that would sit on top of the Mishkan. Now remember, the Mishkan was like the Holy Temple. It was like the, the traveling version of it before we actually built the more permanent structure. So when the cloud cover sat on top of the Mishkan, on top of the tabernacle, that means that we were to stay in that encampment. When the cloud lifted, then that was our signal that it was time to travel. Now, if you look at that section of the Torah, if you think what I read to you before 
that those two verses was repetitive. This is one of the most repetitive sections in the entire Torah. It talks about when it when it sat, we we sat, when it left, we rose, when it rose, we left, and then when it sat, we sat, and it just goes every variation and on and on and on and on and on. And you're like, what is going on? But really what the Torah is talking about, it's talking about in praise of the Jews. And it's approaching the stopping and the and, and the go and, and the going from every different level. And and I'll explain right now. What it's saying is, and I remember, it's also talking about us in our own lives and our own travels and our own situations, right? What it's saying is that when there were instances where we really liked the place. You know, like I'm sure there were situations in our life where we were in a great relationship or a great job or something like that. And we were like, this is really good. I want, I want more of this. And then you know what? The cloud cover lifted. And it was time to go. And we went. And that's not easy. That's not easy. And on the other side of it, there are times where the cloud won't lift and we have to stay and we feel stuck in a certain period of our lives and we don't rebel and we stay and we work through whatever it is, whatever reason we have to be there. On a much deeper level, what we're saying is that during our travels, and the Or Chaim discusses this, it's a very core Kabbalistic thought, that the reason for our travels is that there are these sparks, these divine sparks that were traveling all around the world and that were elevated. We're like restoring back back to their highest places in heaven. And, and if we're in a certain place, and if we're in a certain place for a period of time, it means that there's sparks there that still need elevating. There's some issue there that still needs rectification. And it was in praise of the Jews that even in those places where we would have wanted to go, but we stayed. We stayed because the cloud cover hadn't lifted. And I know that I've given this advice to multiple people at very sort of like very kind of sensitive times in their life when, when it's come up where like someone's been you know, booted from a job or something like that, and we've had that type of relationship where we could talk about it. And I've said to them, I've said, you know something? The cloud lifted. Cloud lifted, and now it's it's time to go. You know, that's what it is. But you're but the beautiful part of it is that who lifts the cloud? Because it also says that when we marched through the desert, there was a pillar of cloud in front of us. So when the cloud lifts, lifts, it's not just a shoe on our backsides. <laughs> it's not just get out. It's no, I am taking you. God says, I am taking you to the next place. I am taking you to the next place. So you don't have to be afraid. Just come and follow me. 